Good morning, everyone. What a glorious day of worship. Hasn't it been good to be in God's house today and worship the Lord? I know that God's got a word, got a message for all of us today. And uh, tell your neighbor right now, God's got a word for you today. Come on now, tell him. God's got a word for you today. He does, doesn't he? Thank you, Matthew. So I invite you to open your Bible today and look with me. We're going to look at a uh, passage in the book of Acts. We're continuing this series of messages calling the ministry of the resurrected Christ. We see how Jesus is continuing his work from heaven on earth through his Holy Spirit's work and uh, through the life of God's people and his church. And so if you look with me to Acts chapter 11, we're continuing where we left off last week, Acts chapter 11, and we're going to be in verse number 19. Today's message is entitled, Characteristics of a Christian Church. We're going to look at the church here in Antioch, and that's where believers were first called Christians. And it's the first time we see that name, Christian, in the Bible. And so uh, what does that mean? And so what are some of those characteristics of a Christian church? When I was thinking about characteristics of different organizations, in light of what's been happening the last couple of days, I was thinking about what are the characteristics of a winning baseball team? Number one, they should, a good baseball team, they hit good pitching. They should field balls put in play cleanly. They should advance runners who get on base. They should avoid errors. They need to have good pitching. They need to work together well as a team. But bottom line, they need to score more, more runs than the, other, the opponents do. And that's important for a winning team, isn't it? Well, my Cardinals have not done so well in recent days. But there's hope. But today we're not talking about baseball. We're talking about the church of Jesus Christ. What are the characteristics of a Christian church? And when we look at the church in Antioch, we see some of those great characteristics. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to look with me, and we're going to look in the 11th chapter, beginning with verse number 19. So open your Bible and follow along if you will. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus, and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he had come and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, 
full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church, taught great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Now, this took place in the day of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look into your word today, that you speak to our hearts about our own walk with you, about your work in our lives, about what you want our church to be, and, Father, about obedience to you. And, Father, that we might recognize how you're at work in this broken, messed-up world, still changing and saving lives and giving hope in a world of lostness. So, Father, today we ask you to speak to our hearts, draw us close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at Antioch in Syria, the believers were first called Christians there. I think initially it was a term of derision, most likely. They were probably trying to make fun of these believers, these folks who are following this man named Christos, which means Messiah. And so they start calling them Christos, and then they add the word in, Christus, Christians. And so Jesus was their authority. And they saw something in them, though, that they'd never seen in anybody else in these Christians. And they identified them as being different than other religious people. Antioch was filled with lots of religion. But there was something set apart and different about these Christ followers. And even a lost culture could see that. Antioch was the capital city of Syria, about 300 miles to the north of Jerusalem. There are 16 different Antiochs that we find during the Bible days. But this Antioch was one of the great cities of the Roman world. It was the third largest city in the Roman world. Over 800,000 people lived there. The Orontes River runs through Syria as it comes its way out of the mountains. It's close to the port city, Seleucia. It is, it, is a, it is a major city, the third most important city in Rome. It's multicultural. It's filled with Romans and Greeks and Syrians, Persians, Arabs, and Jews. Its main street was, it's, it's a luxurious place, its main street was one of the wonders of the Roman world. It was four miles long, and it was paved in marble with marble colonnades lining both sides of that cardo. It was an amazing street. As a matter of fact, 
Antioch was the first city to have streetlights all along that corridor. Of course, not electricity. I know that. But, and you know that. But that it was an amazing time. It was an amazing city. It was luxurious. It was a pagan city that worshipped all kinds of Roman gods, Greek gods. But, but their, their, their major worship was a cult and a tent, the temple of Daphne. And there they worshipped outside of the city at that temple. It was filled with temple cults and prostitutes, men and women. And there was great wickedness in the city. As a matter of fact, one Roman philosopher said, a uh, politician said concerning the decadence that was in Rome and the wickedness that was being uh, exhibited in Rome, he said the Orontes River has flowed into the Tiber, meaning we've become like Antioch here. But this dark city becomes the missionary center of Christianity. The center, the locus of the Christian church moves from Jerusalem to Antioch. It's between Jerusalem and Asia Minor and Europe. And some of the great theologians find that to become their home. Barnabas and Paul and Peter and Silas. In the second century, Ignatius and Theophilus. In the third century, Lucian, Theodore, Chrysostom. This is a great center of preaching and theology. And it becomes one of the most important one of the most important centers of all of Christianity. This dark place was the light of the gospel of Jesus it was going to change the whole city. What are the characteristics of a Christian church? What are the biblical characteristics of it? We live in a world in our, in, in, that has become consumed with such pragmatism that we've missed out on the importance of what it means to be a church. If the aim of a church is to grow, then the way to make the church grow is make people feel good, no matter what, one scholar said. And when we discover that there are other ways to feel good, they leave the church that they no longer need. Because it's all about a relevant church but we're sowing our own seeds of irrelevance and losing our identity as well. We must be a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Spirit-led, Christ-honoring church because we are the body of Jesus Christ. And our hope is found in Him and in Him alone. So what are the marks? We see them in Antioch of a Christian church. First of all, they believe and trust in Jesus Christ. That's a church that's filled with believers who trust in Jesus. Verse number 19, those scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking to no one but the Jews alone, the word of God. They were believers. They trusted in Jesus Christ. They had trusted in Jesus Christ personally. They were disciples. Verse 26 calls them disciples. They're followers of Christ. They've been trained by Christ, and they are on mission 
with Christ. They've experienced great persecution and difficulty and hardship in their life. In Acts chapter number 8, we're reminded of what happened in Jerusalem. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution connected with Stephen began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so the church was being ravished. Verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and would put them into prison. The church was scattered. Then those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Where? Into Samaria. But the same kind of thing happens up in Antioch when they arrived there because they believed in Christ. They've been baptized, and they're following Jesus. I'm telling you, this, this church was made up of people who trusted and believed in Jesus, and he changed their life personally. And the church of Christ is not just an organization. The church of Jesus Christ is a living organism where Jesus Christ is the center of the church. And it's filled with people who believe and trust in him. To be a church member is not to get your name on a roll. To be a church member is not just getting wet in the baptistry. Being a church member is not because you give your tithe. Being a church member means I know Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, and he's come and changed my life and made me a part of his church. They were also trusting in Christ daily. They were relying on Jesus. In all of their difficulties, they relied on Christ. This church was persecuted. That means they had experienced in the workplace in Judea, they were despised. They were made fun of in school. They were bullied by powerful people. They were disregarded by the culture. They lost their jobs. They lost their businesses. They were turned on by their own family members. They were put out of the synagogue. They were forced to go into jail. They were threatened with death. This is the kind of persecution they experienced. They were not only persecuted, they were pursued. They were pursued by Saul and others who would hunt them down, wanting to arrest them and hurt them and drive them away. They were scattered. That means they were dispersed. They lived like aliens in another culture. They traveled hundreds of miles away from home as refugees. They suffered the loss of everything. They lost their homes. They lost their business. They lost their career. They lost their savings accounts. They lost their relationships with family and friends. Can you imagine? They knew hardship. Jesus told us, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. We should not be afraid. But they kept their faith. They trusted in God. You say, Pastor, that's not happening like that anymore. Oh, yes, it is. It's just we don't see it here. 
11 Christians are killed every day for their faith in Iraq, Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Pakistan. In places like Syria, Iraq, where ISIL exists, ISIS exists, they have to put on your door, if you're a believer, N, which stands for Nazarene. You're a follower of the Nazarene. They force them to sell their houses or surrender all of their money. They take children into captivity and say the only way to get your child back is to publicly renounce Jesus Christ as your Savior. We don't know much about that here. There's such immaturity and weakness and softness that has infiltrated the American church, that we quit following Christ for the most ridiculous reasons. Well, someone didn't come and see me, and I'm just not coming back. Well, I didn't get invited. I'm not coming back. They changed my classroom. I'm not coming back. They don't sing my style of music. The early church had real and vibrant faith in Jesus Christ, and they held to him in real loss of life and trials. Amen? Amen. Can you imagine this first century family who followed Jesus? They're traveling 300 miles to get to Antioch. They've been persecuted. They've lost everything. All they have is a little bit of clothes and a bundle on their back. Maybe they have a burrow or a donkey. They have their wife or children in tow. Where are we going to live? They're sleeping on the ground. They make their way days and days and days of traveling. And they come into a town that they don't know hardly anybody. They go to the synagogue and they meet some other Jews, but they're looked at a little bit skeptical because these are Christian Jews, they're Jews that are followers of Jesus, they find a community of faith, they, 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 they've lost everything. They're hungry and broken, rejected, but they're filled with the presence of Jesus Christ. Wow. That's a characteristic of a Christian church. They trust in Jesus. Number two, they are believers who proclaim Jesus. They started telling, talking about Jesus to anybody who listened, and they began with the Jews first, sharing, proclaiming Jesus, the Word of God. And folks, you don't preach Jesus if you don't, you don't, if you don't, if you don't preach Jesus if you don't believe in Jesus. But when you believe in Jesus, you're going to talk about Jesus. And you declare what you believe, and that's exactly what they did. What do you believe? Paul said, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We know the Lord, and we're trying to persuade men. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are missionaries with Christ. Jesus said, go, and as you're going, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. 
They believe the gospel, they're declaring the gospel. They're declaring what they believe and know to be true, and they're doing it in a way that's believable. Reminds me of a passage over in 1 John. Grab your Bible. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. We've seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the Father and manifested to us. What we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Amen. I'm telling you, it's the greatest news in all the world. And so they're sharing the gospel with others. You know, if somebody really believes in Jesus, their lives changed by Jesus, they can't help talking about Jesus. Amen? Number three, these believers love other people. One of the characteristics that's undeniable and, and always give evidence to our faith in Christ is how we feel about other people. And notice in verse number 20, it says, But there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. You see, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they understand a little bit better about Greek culture. They could speak Greek language. They understand and have worked with Greeks in their life. These are Jews. They're believers in Christ. They love God, but they also love people. And the Jews at first were only preaching to other Jews. But God began to work in these men, especially some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they had been proclaiming to Jews only, but these men began to speak to Greek people about Christ. Why do you think they did that? I think because they saw in their lives that they're like them. You know, Joe, he, he's like me. He goes to work with me. He works making stuff like I do. He has a family like I have a family. His life is broken like my life was broken without Christ. He's helpless without Jesus Christ. He's messed up. He's sinful. He's been deceived and being deceived by Satan and all of these false religions. He's been held captive. His eyes are blinded. But he's made in the image of God. And God loves him, and God cares about him. And they began to see men and women made in the image of God, and they cared about them. And they saw that that's the way I was, and God saved me, not by any merit on my own. I didn't earn it or deserve it. I couldn't keep the law. I was a sinner myself. Christ saved me by his grace. And if he loved me, can he save them too? And barriers were coming down. And they began to preach Jesus to Gentiles too. Hallelujah, I'm one of them. And Christ began to change their lives. 
They didn't judge other people. They loved other people. They saw them hurting. It's so easy for religious communities to become self-absorbed. It's so easy for religious communities to become legalistic, judgmental, and judge other people by the way they look, by what they wear, by what they drive, by their education, by the color of of their skin, by the language that they speak, about their politics. I don't care about that. What about their soul? Do they know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? That's what a Christian church is moved by. They were moved by the Holy Spirit and love that overcame a legalist mindset to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will know we are Christians by our love, not arguments. They won't know you're a Christian because of your politics. Your politics doesn't attract anybody to Jesus Christ. I don't care. uh, Listen, you can be all in for Trump or you can be a never Trump or I hate Trump or I hate whatever. I don't care. It's about loving Jesus and loving people. In this political world we live in, I'm telling you, don't get in alignment with too, too close to any of the bunch. They all are lost and they need Christ. The world won't be changed by carrying placards. And it won't be changed by your slick bumper sticker. Your world is going to be changed by the love of Jesus Christ manifest in his people as they share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the love of Christ that constrains us. It holds us. It controls us. Let's look at that passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You have your Bible. (laughs) Y'all think I'm crazy this morning, don't you? That's right. That's what some people said about Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, if we're crazy, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're we're a sound mind, it's for you. Listen, verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things, old things have passed away, and new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, listen, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal, a begging through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Because he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our part. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hallelujah.
Fourthly, believers are experiencing the presence of God. The presence of the Lord. Verse 21, they are experiencing His presence in an re- unbelievable way. The hand of the Lord was with them. A large number who believed turned to the Lord. When it says the hand of the Lord, it's the presence of Christ is with them. The Lord's presence. And many believed and turned to the Lord. They have faith in Christ. They confess Christ. They repent of sin. And lost people are coming to Jesus and being baptized and repenting and becoming a part of his church. How do you evaluate God's hand on a church? God's work among us. Let me give you a hint. It's not how many attend an event. It's not how many people come to a fall festival or a Christmas program or a wild game dinner. It's not how much money came into the offering. And it's, now how, it's not about how large your buildings are or budget is. The presence of Jesus Christ in a church is marked by this. Lives being transformed by faith in Jesus Christ turning from idolatry and sin and turning to God, repentance toward God, restoration of families and marriages and homes, and the joy of the Lord in our lives. That's the hand of the Lord. God do it in our church. Amen? Number five. Believers submit to pastoral authority and teaching. Notice in verse number 22, it says the news about this reached the church at Jerusalem, and they sent, who's the greatest encourager you could send? Barnabas. Off to Antioch, and when he arrived, he witnessed the grace of God and rejoiced. He began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true, faithful, loyal to the Lord And Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So he hurries off and he says, I need help. God's at work here. I need help. Now, it's been about 10 years since Saul of Tarsus was saved and converted on the way to Damascus. And he's in Tarsus now, ministering, serving, preaching, planting churches and Growing disciples, doing what God had called him to do. And so Barnabas said, I need some help. And he told brothers, I'll be back as soon as I can. I'm leaving. It takes him some time. He goes to Tarsus. When he gets over into Tarsus, he looks and searches until he finds Saul. And when he sees Saul, he said, Saul, you're gifted uniquely for this. You have the mind for this. You have the background for this. And Saul... I know you were involved in all that persecution. Some of those people have heard about you. But listen, they've also heard that you've been saved. Saul, you come with me and help me disciple and train these guys. And so Saul comes. And when he comes, they listen to Saul. And they listen to Barnabas. They trusted. And they were encouraged as they taught. They were not resistant. They weren't skeptical. They weren't critical. But they submitted to their apostolic authority. And Saul's calling and Barnabas' calling. Folks, I want to say this and listen clearly. You'll never learn and you'll never grow in your faith if you are resistant to all authority in your life. 
Well, I can't help it. I'm just a rebel. As if that's something good. Listen, you can kick against the goads, but it, does, it brings disaster and hurt into your life. Amen. The truth of the matter is, when you kick against authority, you're kicking against God. You don't blindly follow anybody. This is our ultimate authority. Yes, Lord, amen. But God called men women filled with the Spirit of God, called by God. God places them in a church to teach us and that we learn. Amen? So they submit and they yield and God begins to change their life. James chapter 1, verse 21. Listen. So after getting rid of all moral filthiness, and overflowing wickedness, receive with humility the word planted in you, and it's able to save your souls. Amen. Hmm. Isn't that good? Number six, believers give generously to help other believers who have need. Notice in verse number, most interesting thing, there's some Prophets come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them is named Agabus, man of God. He stands up and the Holy Spirit speaks to him. says there's going to be a famine and it's going to hit Judea hard and Jerusalem. And the disciples listen and they believe that the Spirit of God is speaking through Agabus. And how do they respond? And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending in charge of Barnabas and Saul, the leaders. Isn't that good? You know what? Can I share something? Listen close. We as believers are not an island. We're not alone. Believers are related to others who know Jesus Christ. Folks, our church doesn't exist for our comfort only, our needs only. Our church exists for Him. It's all about Him. We are His church. It's His great big kingdom that He's building. It's for His glory. We are His people. We're on His mission. It's for His purpose. It's not my money, it's his money. It's not my influence, it's, 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 it's my life. And he's made me new and he's gifted me and called me to obey him. And they gave to folks they didn't know living 300 miles away of a different culture and a different language, but the same Jesus and the same church and the same Spirit of God dwelling in them. Amen? Isn't that good? That's what I want our church to be. These are the characteristics of a Christian church. That you believe and trust in Jesus. That we're proclaiming Jesus to people like us and not like us. 
They were loving everyone. It was the love of Jesus Christ that we experienced the hand of the Lord among us. That lost people are being saved. That we're submitting and yielding to the authority of Christ in our life. And that we're giving generously of ourselves in a broken world. And Jesus will be glorified. Amen? Stand with me. Father in heaven, I pray that you have your way in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.